Paul, an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel concerning his son, declared to be son of God with power by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace to bring about the obedience of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Scholars believe this letter to the church at Rome was probably written from Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea by the sea, the same place Pontius Pilate had lived 30 years before. It's now been about 30 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's been 28 or 29 years since Paul had his dramatic experience on the road to Damascus where the risen Christ asked him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We believe he is imprisoned in Caesarea and he writes to a group of Christians in Rome whom he's never met to try to spell out his faith to them. We believe a couple of years later he did arrive in Rome, that Peter had also made his way to Rome, and that under the persecutions of Caesar Nero, both of them were put to death. Some scholars think as early as 62, some think as late as 65. So two years, maybe five, before Paul died, he wrote this important letter. Our lectionary says this is a proper text for the fourth Sunday in Advent. Let's take a look. Number one, he says, Paul, an apostle, that means apostello, one sent out, set apart for the gospel of God, he said. The gospel of God. I was reading recently about a windstorm that hit, hit Amsterdam. I wouldn't have paid attention to that normally. I mean, we have wind-damaging storms fairly often in Oklahoma, Kansas, Arkansas, Missouri. But there was a little footnote that said, the famed Anne Frank chestnut tree was blown to the ground. Ah, that got my attention. Gail and I have been three times to Amsterdam. We've seen different things each time we've been there, but all three times we made our way to the apartment where Anne Frank and her family were hidden for more than three years to try to escape Nazi death. Finally, they were betrayed, of course, and in fact, they were taken, all of them, to concentration camps. Gail and I wanted to go to the camp where Anne Frank and her sister died. We took a train from Berlin down to Sella. It's one of Tulsa's sister cities uh, through the World Alliance that our Becky Collins hid so wonderfully well. Sella's a beautiful little town. If you ever have opportunity to go there, they were having a festival the weekend. Gail and I were there with the carts set up in the, in the little square and people were having sausages, things you think about with Germany. But a few miles outside of Sella, there was a horrible camp called Bergen-Belsen and Frank was sent there. She died there. Gail and I have been to eight of the camps now. We've stood remembering the name of one or more who was in each of those particular camps to stand there and with our very deepest heart say, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I'm so sorry, Corey Tenboom, that you were here at Bergen-Belsen, though she survived, a Christian who had sheltered Jews in Harlem in the Netherlands, to stand there and say, I'm so sorry 
But all three times we've been to that apartment and we've read excerpts from Anne's diary again. A teenage girl, not able to go outside for more than three years. In her diary, she talks about how much the church bells came to mean to her. That church is still there. Those bells still ring. You can stand in the Anne Frank apartment. You can hear the church bells chiming on the quarter hour. Just outside the window, she described this chestnut tree. It was more than a hundred years old when Anne was confined in that apartment. It was more than 180 years old when it blew down the other day. But Anne wrote that this magnificent tree that grew all the way up past their apartment windows gave her strength. It was something green and alive and wonderful. She saw it as a gift from God, this magnificent tree just outside the window. In my adult lifetime, I resolved to spend as much time as I could with members of the Jewish community to be actively involved in dialogue with them because I don't believe we can ever understand Jesus the way we ought if we don't understand the faith community that produced him. The faith community that had known the one true God for almost a thousand years before Jesus came along. Unless we learn from them. What did you learn about God? So Paul, in another place, would not say, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He says, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I have been set apart to teach the ethnics about Israel's God, who's chosen to reveal himself to them in Jesus of Nazareth. It begins with God. We are theocentric, God-centered. Number two, then he says, for the good news about his son, a son who was chosen in power through the resurrection. You see, in Paul's time, there were many who believed that a crucified Messiah was a failed Messiah. Messiah would be crucified, never humiliated in such a way by the Roman authorities. Messiah would bring peace. He would drive the Romans from their land. He would establish the true shalom, the well-being, where everybody had something to eat and something to drink and a safe place to sleep at night and meaningful work again the next day. That's what Messiah would do. And if, in fact, that was the end of it that Friday afternoon, they would have been right. But Paul would challenge every group to whom he ever addressed that God said, I have the last word. Not death. I have the last word. And he raised Jesus from the dead. I told you that one of Gail's and my favorite painters was Caravaggio. His name was Michelangelo Marisi. came to be known by the name of his hometown. Michelangelo Marisi lived only 39 years, more than 400 years ago. The best art critics think we have only 65 of his paintings. There were copiers that came along. 65 that Caravaggio actually painted himself, and more than half of them never leave Italy. The other, almost a half, have been bought by wealthy collectors and other great museums of the world. There are a few in this country, and they've been gathered for a big exhibit right now out in Los Angeles. And one of those is called St. Francis of Assisi in Ecstasy. 
St. Francis lived 400 years before Caravaggio, and Caravaggio, 400 years before you and I came along, St. Francis lived 800 years ago, but it's still an interesting trip to go to Assisi. You ride a train along the valley, and when it stops, you get off and you look up that tall little hill. You can climb if you're really adventuresome, or you can take a bus or a taxi to the top. When you get there, you see a magnificent cathedral with paintings by Giotto, some of the most famous in Christendom. But if you're really adventuresome, you can climb on up into the woods at the top of the hill. It's about three more miles. You can come to the caves where Francis and those who set themselves apart with him live for a long time. You remember St. Francis was born to a wealthy merchant in Assisi. He was a young man with great dreams. He went away to war. He was horrified by what he saw in war, men killing other men for no real reason that he could see except somebody wanted what belonged to somebody else. He came back to Assisi, a changed man. One day in the public forum there, he took off all of his outer clothing, keeping on what you and I would have called his underwear, and said, I'm not going to be a merchant. I'm not taking over the business of my father, and I will never engage in war again. And he went up into the caves. He founded an order in time that would be called the Franciscans. They've been around for the last 800 years. But 400 years after Francis, Caravaggio painted this picture. Francis is stretched across the lap of an angel. It looks very much like Michelangelo Pietà with the body of Jesus draped across Mary's lap after he's died on the cross. Francis in the very humble brown cassock of a monk. But this angel is magnificent. Look at the wings. They are so big and strong. And what Caravaggio is saying is that when this man has lived as well as he knows how all of these years, the angel has scooped him up and is taking him home to be with the Almighty forever. The resurrection established Jesus as Son of God with power, Paul says. Things have never been the same. Number three, in order that we might experience grace, Paul wrote, in order that you in Rome and I in this prison may experience the grace of God. The last few weeks there's been a lot of hype about a movie opening on Tuesday of this week, Les Miserables. Yes, famous stage play. You know that takes millions now to stage a major work on Broadway and sometimes they only last a week or two. Well, not so with this musical. It opened in London, played to sell out crowds. It's still playing in London after all these years since 1885. 27 years it's been playing now. It came to New York and it played and played there. It's made $2.15 billion as a stage play. Now it's been made into a movie. In this hype about the movie, lots of wonderful stories, you have to remember that the author was writing into a horrible time in French history. The common people believed that if they could just chop off the heads of royalty, if they could get rid of the kings and queens, everything would be better. 
sort of like the Arab uprising. And then they discovered that putting together meaningful government in Iraq, Afghanistan, Egypt, isn't nearly so simple as that. And years after the revolution in France, poor people were still starving to death, and there was no justice. And so this story of Jean Valjean, who spent 19 years on a chain gang for stealing a loaf of bread when he and his family were starving to death. And when he is released after 19 long years, the policeman who sticks, sticks his finger into his face and says, 24601, his prisoner number. And Jean Valjean says, I have a name. I am a man. I am Jean Valjean. No, you will forever be 24601. A thief is always a thief. I will track you down. Surely enough, Jean Valjean stops in at a church, hoping there's something to eat. A kindly old bishop feeds him, and when he leaves the room, Jean Valjean sees these beautiful crystal candlesticks, and he grabs them and puts them in a bag and starts to run away. And there's the policeman saying, I knew it! A thief is forever a thief. And the old bishop hears the commotion and comes out and says, What's the trouble, my good man? The police officer says, he has stolen your candlesticks. And he said, oh, no, no, I gave them to him. And Jean Valjean's life was changed forever. Did you read this part? Colm Wilkerson, who created the role of Jean Valjean on the stage in London, 1885, uh, uh, 1985, sorry, 1985, and then came to New York later and created the role here, is now 68 years old. He knew he wasn't going to be Jean Valjean in the movie, but he called the producer and director and asked, could I be the bishop? Could I play the role of the bishop? And they said, why, sure. And he said, because presentation after presentation, I received grace. In the movie, I would like to give grace. Number four, it leads to obedience of faith. In his letter to the Galatians, where Paul is debating, do these Gentile Christians, some of them 40, 50-year-old men, now have to be circumcised? Do they first have to be Jews before they can be Christian? And he writes to the Galatian Christians and says, I tell you in Christ Jesus, circumcision no longer matters, but neither does uncircumcision, but faith that works through love. And here to the church in Rome, he says, the obedience of faith. That's the goal, the obedience of faith. If you have received God's gift of his love for you, if you've come to believe he loves you as much as any other child of his on the planet, then you're supposed to start doing agape. Yesterday morning, Saturday morning, Gail and I were watching one of the early shows on television, and from New York City, they were interviewing the pastor of the Abyssinian Baptist Church, Dr. Calvin Butts. Uh, years ago in our series here, we had a pastor 
He now re had retired when he came to us, but Dr. Samuel Proctor came and gave our series, and he had been pastor of that famed Abyssinian Baptist Church in New York. Well, Dr. Calvin Butts is now, and he was being interviewed along with one of New York City's most famous rabbis and a woman of the Islamic faith, also well-known in the New York City area. And they were being asked specifically about all the horrors in Connecticut, all of these precious little elementary-aged children that had been shot down along with a number of teachers, administrators. What do we do? Dr. Calvin Butt said, you need to remember that God birthed his son into Bethlehem, into this world, when Herod the Great asked for a slaughter of the innocents. Kill all the babies, kill all the babies to be sure we rout out this one who's claiming to be some kind of king. And Dr. Butts said, you see, things have always been tough. Every year things are tough. I mean, you shouldn't compare one tragedy with another to the people in Connecticut. This is the worst that's ever, ever happened. You know what else he said? You know who you need to fly into Connecticut to sit with those parents? The parents from Columbine, Colorado. You want to know who you should send to Connecticut? Fly the black mamas and daddies whose little girls were blown up in that church in Alabama all those years ago. Fly those parents to Connecticut and let them sit down with these parents today. Life has been tough before now. It's tough again. And we need to be there with the love and grace of God. But then the rabbi got the last couple of sentences, and they were terrific, I thought. He said, while you're grieving for the children and their families in Connecticut, not all of us can go to Connecticut. We don't need to go to Connecticut. You need to remember the children and the teachers where you live. What can you do for the teachers and the children where you live? Karen Barber has written that it doesn't promise to be a great Christmas for her husband. Their son is one of the American forces still in Iraq. So she said we resolved, well, let's don't think about Christmas without him. And to do that, we just won't think about Christmas. Let's just don't think about it. So we're not decorating, no tree, no decorations. Others will have family coming, going. We'll work more than they do. So each at his or her job, we'll, we'll work more and let the others have more time off. And Karen said we had a business associate flying into the big airport in Atlanta, and I volunteered. I'll go pick her up at the airport. So she said, I got there. I went as far as one can go nowadays with all the security measures. And I was standing there waiting for this business associate to suddenly appear. When I heard applause, I looked around for some celebrity. We have them coming through the Atlanta airport from time to time, she said. And instead, it was a small group of young men and women in camouflage desert fatigue. They were back from Afghanistan. I saw an older man with a bright red vest saying USO on the front, and he was rushing over, shaking the hand of every one of those young men and women. And there was a grandmotherly type who was hugging them like only a grandmother can. I saw her. One after the other, she threw her arms around these young men and women and hugged them. And suddenly a voice deep inside said to me, 
caring. If you can't hug your own, hug one of mine. Hug. <laughs>